My name is Maya Deary. This interview with Diani Barra, founding director of the Wahini Project, is the third in a series called Waves to Wisdom. This project is a simple one. I seek out people I admire, surfers with what look to me to be ocean-centered wisdom practices. I ask them if they'd be willing to share a surf session or two, and then, after we ride some waves together, talk to me about their oceanic habits, surfing, work, meaning, whatever comes up. What happens when a Mexican-American woman overcomes a lifelong fear of water to learn how to swim and surf, and then finds herself bobbing under a rainbow when unexpected visitors appear from the deep? These 10 surfers, who are all men except for my girlfriend and I, are just stunned and still and looking out at these beautiful dolphins. And it was just this moment of, this is amazing. And it was the moment where I realized I had a flash of every door that had possibly opened to allow me to be in that moment. The, the life of struggle was over. I was fortunate to spend a couple of days in the company of Diani Barra, including an afternoon volunteering for the Wahini Project. Wahini is an organization dedicated to eliminating the barriers that prevent girls from developing a relationship with the ocean. On another day, Dion and I set out on paddleboards to take in the windswept bay firsthand. Afterwards, pleasantly exhausted, we settled in for a talk in her quaint Monterey Bay home with her young son playing nearby. Welcome to Waves to Wisdom. If you feel comfortable with it, will you tell me your name and age and how you started to surf? Okay. My name is Dion Ibarra. I'm third. Oh, <laughs> not 30. <laughs> I'm 45. Do I need to start over? No, that's okay. great. <laughs> oh, I'm 45. And I started to surf because a friend invited me out one day. She said, let's go surfing. I was like, okay. And we sort of blindly, blind leaning the blind, went out with surfboards and started to surf. And a few months later, we decided maybe taking lessons would be good. <laughs> so we took some good lessons in Santa Cruz and then maybe a couple months later, went to surf in Mexico and took more lessons. And it was in Mexico where it sort of took off. And that warm water surfing every day, all day, um, set my path to becoming a, a surfer. And I've tried to surf as much as I can in the last seven years. I asked Dion about her background with water in general and the ocean in particular. Like me, she'd learned to surf as an adult, and it had clearly reoriented the trajectory of her life in transformative ways. But my mom had me and my siblings on a swim team at our private pool by age six. Dion comes from a heritage with a very different history of access to water-based recreation. While a recent USA Swimming study reports that, at last, rates of swimming proficiency are climbing among African-American and Hispanic children, it's still true that 79% of children from homes with annual household incomes below $50,000 have low to no swimming ability. A child's relationship with and fear of or comfort around the water can be life-saving or life-threatening. 
Dion told me the story of her own family's complicated feelings about water. Well, one thing is I'm Mexican-American, and I think culturally, um, many Mexican-Americans don't have a relationship with the ocean. And there's um, a wall of fear that's been placed into our culture. And so that was very true in my family. And my mother was very fearful of the ocean, but took me to the beach. Um, but in my childhood, we had lots of opportunities to go to rivers and lakes. And so I got to spend a lot of time in the water, but I always had a life jacket because she, again, was very, she didn't know how to swim. None of, none of my family knew how to swim on either side, my mom or my dad's family. So with that background, she thought, well, if she has a life jacket, she's safe. And so she sent me in the water that way. And thank goodness, because I really did have an upbringing of, of having lots of water time in rivers and lakes and getting to go to the beach, not going into the ocean, but having the experience of being there. And I think those, my many early childhood memories are on the shores of the beaches that I take my kids to and where we have the Wahini Project. And, um, but now I actually get in it. Um, but that was how I was raised growing up. Okay. And you were also afraid of the water? Yes. Because, because of that fear, especially the ocean, my mom said, if you go in past your ankles, it, it's a shelf and you will fall right into it and you'll drown. And even in lakes, she said, you know, don't ever go in without a life jacket because the bottom of the lake will, will suck you in like, almost like quicksand. So terrifying, terrifying. So really anytime I was not in a life jacket, even in pools, I, I took swimming lessons, but I always had a fear because there was just something sort of ominous about being in it that, you know, I was sort of wired and geared to have a sense of fear about it. And so I had that fear most of my adult life until I headed into my 30s. I got really confident in a swimming pool, but just so fearful of going out into the deep water of the ocean. So it took, I'd say, eight years for me to mostly overcome it. But now into my 40s, I think I have a healthy fear. And, uh, but I'm definitely, I can enjoy it and go swim out and feel really free about it. And so it's a great feeling now to have overcome that. So the chapters in between, now I'm in my 40s and mm -hmm. I'm a surfer. Mm -hmm. And when I was a child, I could swim, but was fearful in, in the water. Uh, what happened in that transition between childhood and, and now? A lot of life experience, and which I always felt grateful for because I thought, as an adult, even as a, a teenager or young adult, and college was really helpful to open my door, open doors um, that I thought were never even possible. Dion owed her ability to go to college when and as she did to a provision of a law passed in 1944, commonly called the GI Bill of Rights. The Department of Veterans Affairs website reports that the bill was controversial as it was debated in Congress. Quote, some lawmakers shunned the idea of paying unemployed veterans $20 a week because they thought it diminished their incentive to look for work. Others questioned the concept of sending battle-hardened veterans to colleges and universities, a privilege then reserved for the rich. I got to college on the GI Bill from my father who died in Vietnam. 
And so I was able to receive the benefits he would have received as a vet. My father was a um, migrant field worker and his family had come in from Mexico and they um, ended up settling in the Salinas Valley and picked strawberries. And he was the first in his family to graduate from high school. And that was always a really big deal to my mom. But they got married right after he graduated. So she was still in high school. So their high school sweethearts got married. And then he was drafted into Vietnam and died by friendly fire when he was 20 years old and I was three months old. But he had two really neat things that he had done. And in his young years, 20 years old, he had written a paper in high school and he talked about how proud he was. My mom saved it. How proud he was about being an immigrant or his family, they were immigrants and how proud he was about working in the fields and how hard they worked to give everything to the benefit of the whole family. But that all that hard work, he just said one day, it's, I just want success for my children. And that was so important for me to read that because he was still able to do that in, in his death. And he was only 20. But because of the pride he had in his life, that instilled in me, even through his death, a, an insight into life and how I needed to live and be appreciative of my past. And then while he was in Vietnam, he wrote letters to my mom a lot. We had 200 letters that he wrote to her from Vietnam where he talked about everyday life and talked about himself. This, I did this, I did that. He'd ask her questions and he would just talk. But I learned so much about him through what he talked about himself and the things that he was worried about or concerned about, the things that were on the forefront of his mind about politics and um, being in the military, being drafted, about the war. And I just learned so much about him. And I read those later letters later in my 20s, and I learned about myself. And I realized that just because he wasn't around didn't mean that I didn't grow up to be very similar to his ways of thinking and how he could just share himself about me through these letters and that they would affect me for the rest of my life. And I would keep learning from them. And I show, share them with my kids so that we can keep learning from this 20-year-old is, is really ironic, I think, and beautiful. After spending a significant chunk of my adult energy trying to figure out what is the most useful and impactful way to fulfill the role of college instructor, I found Dion's story about the impact of the writing of a 20-year-old on her life, on her family, and on her learning, both inspiring and instructive. After college, I got to do more university work um, until I was 27. And so college was such a great exposure to other humans outside of my small community and my family and learning about other cultures and other ways of being. And those open doors that came through, I would say, really university allowed me to, to experience different things and see what else, was, what else were options for me. I did sports in high school, um, but I think 
staying an athlete as an adult, you know, you find out ways like you can still compete and competing, which it's not really competing. I was really only competing against myself to see how I could do better running or riding a bike. I just became stronger, I felt, in my body. And and I was moving through barriers, again, that I didn't think were probably possible for me as a younger person with, you know, bike riding or running in these beautiful trails in different cities and states. And, and that feeling of freedom, I think, set a path to surfing that I really thought, this, I think this can be possible. So if you could talk about where you grew up and where it is relative to your work now. Okay. I grew up in an area of Salinas, it's called, um, in the neighborhood called East Salinas. And it's an all Hispanic neighborhood. And at the time in, you know, in the 70s and early 80s, it was the probably where all of the Hispanics in Salinas lived at the time. And, but it was also known as not a very safe neighborhood. Uh, my mom bought a home there right after my dad died. And I think she bought it in a new neighborhood and thought it would just be a, a great community to raise her daughter in. Um, but because of the neighborhood, it just, it sort of was nice for a little while and then just fell into the crime and the, um, the gang activity that was happening in the neighborhood. And so it wasn't a very safe neighborhood. And um, I definitely, around third, fourth grade, it was becoming very clear that it was becoming more and more unsafe. And something very significant that I always hold on to is that we had to get bars on our windows um, to keep people from breaking into our house because it's just happening all the time. And my mom, what I mentioned to you before, she would lock us in her bedroom at night and um, put a chair up against the door to, because she felt that would keep us safe. But we had home invasions when she was home. I was never home when it happened. But just having that sort of little bit of fear going on, like who was gonna knock at the door? Who was just gonna push our door open? Just that little uneasiness that you that you live with. And I, I think at the time, I don't, I don't think I thought anybody else was living any differently. Right. I just thought this is just how it is. Um, so I didn't feel bad about it at the time. I didn't feel like, I really didn't even feel like anything was wrong. I just thought it was normal. And so it wasn't until I was an adult, I was like, oh gosh, that was really bad. And so different from where I am now. But again, um, the people around me, the, the, um, my neighbors, none of, you know, we all just lived in this sidewalk community, you know, concrete and, um, not very much nature around. Um, but again, my mom was, um, always had in her mind to sort of take me out of the neighborhood, which was really wonderful for her to do and insightful for her to do. But I know now that the, families from those communities, especially the children from those communities, may never see the ocean. Um, and how many, where we're sitting now, we can see the ocean. Uh -huh. How many miles away from where we are now did you grow up? Uh, 20 miles. 20 miles, so yeah. very close. Very close, yeah. I can ride my bike there. I've ridden my bike there, right? Like, it's very close. And 
just that little bit of distance keeps people away. And, you know, I know there's a lot of, you know, fear too around like going to communities that aren't in your, of your culture. When I first moved over to this side of the Bay, I remember being in culture shock. Just even I had went to college, but I had never lived. I mean, I don't really count colleges. I, I, I count college differently, but I guess setting up a place to call home over here in the Bay, I felt out of place. And it's taken me probably at least 20 years to acclimate to the culture here. And so I could see why, you know, people are hesitant to come over to the side of the uh, county. And then if there's this big ocean that they're afraid of anyway, then... It's a lot of disincentive. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the other story that you told that I think might be important is the one about um, one of your sons and the boogie board. Oh, when Mitchell was uh, three years old and I was like eight months pregnant, we were out in this little cove and he was on a boogie board, very confident, and he had floated out pretty far for me. And and I thought, you know, and it, and it worried me, like, I need to get him back. And I realized that I, the only way I would be able to go and get him would be to doggy paddle to him, because that's the only thing I could do. And I was actually terrified to think, am I going to have to go and, like, doggy paddle after him? Because I'm terrified of the ocean. So I had to send another kid out, like, teenager. I'm like, can you please go get my child? He's, like, floated way out. And that was one of the moments where I just was a little convicted about my lack of of really being not getting over this fear in the ocean and I knew it needed to change. I thought if I mean I thought okay I could do it but it was going to be one of those things where I could drown us both. And um I've never forgotten that because he had no awareness that he was he probably maybe he wasn't in danger. It was just my fear that made me think he was, but he did need to get back in and he wasn't gonna be able to do it himself. So that's always stood out to me as not being able to, feeling like I couldn't have helped him. And that's, that's a scary place to be as a mom, that you can't help him because of your own fear. And so, it, but it would still take me, tw- you know, a long time to get over that. I told Dion about the powerful role surfing had recently played in my own life acting as an existential rudder as I slowly, haltingly navigated out of a broken heart. For me, surfing is an orienting practice like none other I've been exposed to, and learning late made it even more potent, as I was still improving, discovering, learning, even with a wizened, weakening body that midlife hands us all. I wondered aloud if Dion's process of learning surfing relatively late had been as profoundly orienting. Learning to surf was different again than anything I'd ever done before because it's with this live moving element and nothing is nothing else is like that and so there's it's constantly a different challenge it's always new it's never ever ever the same and I think that specifically is such a great metaphor for life that to be able to to think about anticipating just constant change and challenge and that surfing for me makes me experience every emotion 
fear, happiness, sadness, disappointment, love, everything. And it's just so all-encompassing. And so to me, it's just this great metaphor for life that I can constantly um, bounce off of to sort of explain my own life experience. And, and I think because of, you know, if we look at science and I didn't think about it then, but now I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Like, because it's alive and it's moving, what it's stimulating in me and in my brain and in my endorphins, it's just the perfect remedy for everything as well. It's where I go when I'm happy. It's where I go when I'm sad. It, it, it's where I go really, I know I can go there for everything. And even when I don't think I'm just like in my own self, like it, it's not going to help. I just make myself go and it makes a difference. And so in that way, it's offered me something for life that I could have never imagined. And so when I came up with the idea for the Wahini Project, it just made so much sense because I was a teacher and, um, and I taught parent education for so long and helped moms and parents move through tumultuous times of, of pregnancy and having babies. And I just saw it as a, a great teacher and I could use all these metaphors and I became a better teacher because I had these life lessons from the ocean now to share. And and I could use them as a reference to teach. And so the Wahini Project was, was such a natural um, project because I could then teach so many life lessons to young girls and women like myself from what I had learned and what is just is so natural and it just seems so obvious. And even like spiritual teachings they even made more sense to me because with through the eyes and or a reflection of of the lessons the ocean had told me everything just seemed to make so much sense and why not create something that all of that could be presented in in one place beautiful okay so could you set the scene you're it's the first time you've gone out with your friend and tell that story I just think how unprepared we were. I didn't even have a leash. We were going out in Santa Cruz where there's no beach. You just go off a cliff, you know, the bottom of a cliff. And so there's, it's the water and the cliff. And I really think about how, now that I've had some experiences in those types of scenarios that were really unsafe, I just am so thankful to the ocean that it allowed us in those days and didn't scare the bejesus out of us. And that, it wasn't an unsafe situation for us. And so we were just welcomed in by the sea in this gentle way. And I just think how timing is so perfect in our lives, how it just happened those days and that late summer when the waves are so small and I didn't even know about seasons yet, like the seasonal changes that would happen. Like, yes, it would be seasonally small there. And so it was just so welcoming and embracing to teach us the exact lessons we needed to learn as far as just even balancing on a board. Like that takes, you know, just being able to paddle and learn how to paddle and, um, and be on a board. And the ocean just welcomed us and let us learn these little baby steps along the way 
and and we learned about the ocean and popping up on a surfboard and again taking our lessons in these really gentle conditions that helped us be really successful as far not like popping up right away because that took a long time surfing people say I I thought I'd do better on my lesson today I'm like oh it took me months and months and months Um, but we learned little lessons and I try to reinforce that in when I teach anybody that it's these little slight things that you don't even realize you're working on which is like core strength or stronger arms or again how to sit up on your surfboard turn it around so the ocean led us in and allowed allowed us to learn in baby steps surfing then it started sort of really challenging us like I can't paddle out like I just got worked or you know just longer than I ever thought it'd take me to paddle out but those challenges came a little bit later like months in instead of days and weeks and so we had lots of time we were in no hurry either and so we just took our time and and the ocean taught us what we needed when the time came and and humbled us when we needed (laughs) and what it needed to teach us outside of surfing too in our everyday lives and I think at the time I know for sure I was just leaving a big relationship too and it was just exactly what I needed when you feel defeated and sad like you were saying in a relationship to build yourself up again inside out and the ocean did that for for myself and and I think I could speak for her that happened for her too could you tell the story about the dolphin rain, rainbow day from the beginning? Oh, that was such a beautiful day. So the day started out, it was a small day of surf. Uh, it was at Casa Verde Beach. And I was waiting for my girlfriend to paddle out with me. But it was a beautiful glassy day, small waves, maybe 10 people in the lineup. And as she started to paddle out, a little bit of rain started to fall. And as the rain started to fall, a rainbow formed from one side of the bay, from Monterey all the way to Santa Cruz. Perfect, full rainbow. And it's just like, ah! But then it gets better because dolphins, a pod of dolphins come swimming by. And these 10 surfers, who are all men except for my girlfriend and I, are just stunned and still and looking out at these beautiful dolphins. And it was just this moment of, this is amazing. And it was the moment where I realized I had a flash of every door that had possibly opened to allow me to be in that moment. And it was a moment of feeling grateful and awe-inspiring and the moment of the realization that I am one girl here with one other girl in a lineup with all these men and I'm the only um, Latina, and the other men were all Caucasian. And because I am making note of it, and I just really feel like my life has come to this moment that this little Mexican girl, who's who can look back at her family line and remember that her mother was told that she was a dirty Mexican, and was told that when she wanted to come and roller skate in another neighborhood because they didn't have sidewalks that the kids told her to go back home. The, the life of struggle was over 
and that everything that my family had went through, it's so crazy because you think it's this moment, but it's a quick realization of, of everything that your family has come to want you to have and you've got it, you have it. And that I knew that I had been able to pass that to my children. And it was just this beautiful moment and everything really came from that. And it was just within days that the timing of finishing a really impactful book and um, questioning where my life would go next, that the idea for the project came. And it was all those thoughts that I had had that day that made it happen. And it just all like came like a fountain. Like someone just turned the fountain on and it just went blah <laughs> and came into existence. Such an incredible story. And what was the name of the book? It was called Rowing the Atlantic by Roz Savage. Okay. Yes. A, a, a book about a woman who rows the entire Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, 2,000 miles, solo. Solo. Okay, so there was the Dolphin Day. Mm -hmm. And what happened next? So what happened next was I just, again, I don't really know what the, click was that said, you have to do something to help more girls get out into the ocean, to help more girl, Mexican girls get out in the ocean, like from where you used to live. And so I went crazy writing all these notes from every program I had ever been in, my kids had ever been in, and put together um, models, mixed and matched models of what I had seen work in nonprofits and education outlets for youth and athletic programs, Girl Scouts, all these things. And I sort of made my own up about what we could do in a surfing project. And so initially, the first mission statement from the Wahini Project was to eliminate the barriers that prevent girls from accessing the sport of surfing. And so that's how it started. And it has since changed into eliminating the barriers that prevent girls from a relationship with the ocean. Because I realized that it didn't need to be all about surfing. It just needed to be uh, ocean inspired. That the relationship with the ocean was what would get girls to that place of, of loving the ocean and like we know what you love you want to take care of. Because overall, that's the biggest message is we have this responsibility to the ocean and how can we help them to fall in love with it so that they want to take care of it? Because there's so many fear things around it, around being in the ocean. And so the Wahini Project was based on getting a diversity of girls and that was key to me too, that it wouldn't be about, I could start a for-profit business that got girls to do surfing lessons. That would have been another model I could have run. Or we could have went all, worked just with at-risk youth or uh, marginalized youth or um, disadvantaged youth. But that would not be enough to me either. It was about combining all of the girls that they would form. Our, vi our Part of our vision and mission is that the, this bringing these diversity of girls would help them uh, eliminate barriers that are set up for them to not even be in relationship with each other. There's so many misconceptions about one another that we hold 
And I learned that from being growing up in this county that, you know, if you went to, if you being an athlete, if you went to another school, there was all of these like, oh, it's that side of town. It's not safe. Or you went to that side of the town and they were so ultra rich that you were scared of them too. And so all the kids are, they all love the ocean or they all come to love the ocean. So isn't it great that they can find a commonality and they all want to help take care of it together and they all come up with ways to do that. And so that's what the Wahini Project has become is this um, opportunity for this diverse group of girls to come together in a relationship with the ocean and be inspired by it. Um, it's a way for them to achieve their healthy and fullest, healthiest and fullest of life. And it doesn't matter where they're from. And it doesn't matter if they can pay or not. They come and they, they find out that they're connected. And then we connect into the, a bigger world. You know, we're connected by one ocean. And there's just so many layers of in-between there that, and possibilities that can happen. Excellent. And has that, has the diversity presented challenges they've had to overcome? I wouldn't say so because I feel like from being a teacher, I've learned there's challenges to every learning environment that the ultra rich we work with have their own set of things that we have to be creative around. And the kids who can't get a ride to the beach, we have to get creative around. Tell us exactly what is the Wahini Project? The Wahini Project is a way of being. When we think of Wahini, it means girl, but it's come to identify this group of girls and women in the world who want to build a relationship with the ocean, who want to eliminate barriers that prevent relationships with one another, and who have a common care and concern for the ocean. The focus is a year-round program. I knew when I started it, I, would wa I wanted it to be something that would be a program that would be integrated into their lives. And a school year, September through May, it works out works that out perfectly because they have lots of opportunity to come to the beach. They can choose two or four times a month. They get to go through all the seasons, which to me is really important because they get to see the seasonal changes in the ocean and the different temperatures, the different animal life, ocean life that comes and presents itself at different times of the year. So they choose again, two or four times a month, clinics on Saturdays, and they get this sort of open ocean time. We have different themes that we run through different months. We do the surfer's code and use those for metaphors um, for life, ocean to life. We run those different ones um, each week. We also have the Wahini Manifesto, which is a belief about how Wahinis should live and move in the world. And so we integrate that into all the lessons at the beach. And they get surf lessons. They get to boogie board, they get to body surf. And some of them, it's from ages five to 17. We break them up into age groups, but we have girls that have been coming for four or five years, six years now. And so it really allows uh, them lots of time and opportunity to form that relationship with ocean and to find themselves and what is drawing them into the sea. And sometimes it's surfing and sometimes it's not. We have girls that come for like a few, we have girls that were there today 
that this week they're finally on surfboards and they've been coming for two years to our school year program. And they're just now finding themselves on surfboards because they just love to come and play. And I love to see that, that they just get to be free in the ocean. And so each week girls just come for this opportunity to be in the ocean and become strong water women and do beach cleanups every Saturday. We get to, we get to keep the beach clean where we go and, and form that relationship. And they have plenty of time to do it. And so that's the core of our program. In the summer, we have summer camps because everybody loves to go to summer camp. But we really want to get them in those school year programs. And then we have opportunities also up and down California to do one-day clinics um, from San Francisco all the way to San Diego. And we're lucky enough to be able to work in different countries and work with different partnerships. We have a, a great partnership in the Philippines where we help um, them get surfboards to kid, for kids to stay in school. And the incentive is they get to use the surfboards if they go to school. And we help support a whole entire group of girls there. That, that was our interest was, well, we'll do this partnership with you if the girls are in the water too. And so there's a wonderful woman working in the Philippines that lives there and is from there and works with girls specifically in the Philippines. And we help provide um, finances for her as well as equipment through this other nonprofit. And we go back and forth to Mexico working with a, in a little pueblo there and worked with girls there, I think, for six years and have watched these little, little ones grow up there. And, um, and we get to surf with them when we go. And we have a new outreach that we're going to be doing in Cuba. So working with partners and setting up outreaches where um, organizations are having a hard time bringing girls in, we help them boost that and also working with these girls in other countries we our very first outreach was in the gaza strip and helping those girls connect outside of the gaza strip was mind-blowing for them and they wrote us these beautiful letters and we sent packages to them and they just thought are you do you really exist like their letters are so heartfelt of these you know them writing in their their little words to these American girls, like, I am blah, 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 and thank you so much. And it was just the sweetest way for them to connect. And, and Cuba is going to be the same way, we hope. It's, they've been very isolated, and women's surfing is almost non-existent. And one of our surf instructors uh, found a connection there with, um, at the time, we thought was the only female surfer. And a group of our um, volunteers from the Wahine Project went there and stayed there almost two weeks and formed beautiful relationships with um, a couple of the girls that are, you know, boogie boarding and surfing. And we want to continue to outreach to them to support them. Like, you're not the only one. And they actually connected two girls on uh, one girl on one side of the island who thought she was the only surfer and one on the other side who thought she was the only one connected those two and now they're in a friendship and that's been really supportive for them and so we want to support this young woman in bringing the Wahini project there and giving her resources and mentoring her so she can 
use her place there to influence younger girls. How did the Gaza Project get started? It started, I found the Gaza Surf Club online and I was like, what's that? And saw that they had a couple young girls in this Gaza Surf Club. They were the, the daughters of some of the lifeguards. And I just sent a, an email and I said, what can we do to help support these two young girls in Gaza? And he emailed me right back and there was actually four at the time or maybe five. And he just, they were super excited. And what can we do? And so we started talking and we, they were in the midst of working on outreach to get the, the girls, they're called burkinis, so they can be fully covered in the ocean but have like a wetsuit but also have a burqa. And so they're in the midst of that project. So it was the same time they were doing that that we were able to send some care packages to them and then send letters back and forth. And we had an art project that we did together that we worked on and they worked on. And it was just this beautiful exchange. And the organization that oversees the Gaza Surf Club is Explore Corps. And our relationship has since grown with Explore Corps that they actually help us in the summers when we want to um, outreach to boys. So Explore Corps works through us to do outreach with the boys during the summer. So then the boys aren't left out. But the girls in Gaza have since stopped surfing. And that was a really important lesson about culture and how we want to go in and give them surfboards and what we think is freedom and yes you can surf and we want to support them and yes you can swim and and model western ideas that we perceive as freedom but we can't change culture and is it really necessary for us to maybe we just gave them an experience and that will be enough to help encourage them just as women in whatever ways of being that, that fall into place for them as they become young women. But it isn't always going to be what we think it's going to be. And that's a misconception, I think, that nonprofit NGOs can have when they go to other countries and think, well, they shouldn't even be surfing with a burqa. But that's their culture and to respect it and to embrace it and to support it, even though it's not something that is ingrained in our culture. We just want to support them where they are, not go in and start a revolution through surfing. And actually, we could do them harm that way. And I think that was a really important lesson. Like we supported those girls through that time and now they're doing something else and that's okay and it's all good. Wonderful. Mm. Could you um, tell me, you were off mic when you uh, were talking about Cuba and uh, really a very similar theme, um, the story about the young woman who worked for you who mm -hmm. wanted to go over. Yeah. And so after this awesome trip to Cuba, all the girls come back and they're so over the moon about this experience they had. And one offered... Because I said, well, we, I would love to continue. I did tell them when, they, when you go, don't make any promises. Just be in the moment, be inspired, inspire each other, form friendships, but don't make any promises because we don't know. We can't make any promises about what we can and can't do. 
or what we will are willing to do. Um, but when we came back, they came back, we were brainstorming like, what can we do? And one suggested, well, I can go and move to Cuba for several months and keep coming back and we can set up a Wahini house and I'll run it. And she had all these ideas based on her place in representing the Wahini project in Cuba. And what we've come to find in, again, in ways of being and in, in working in other countries and what can be really sustainable and I think the most respectful and long lasting is that it's not about us going and doing our work and what we see fit because that's, it's not our country. And so the best way, and I think the most sustainable way, and it is, especially in relationship building is to support people that live there. And this female surfer that lives there wants to be mentored. She wants to bring what she learned from the Wahini project and share it with um, her community and the girls in her community and the girls that look up to her. And I really believe that's a more effective way than us coming in as Americans and saying, this is how it should be done. That and Surf Aid International is a beautiful model for this. They knew that in order to change the ways of, of, of the people on this particular island, they thought, you know, there's all these, these, you know, malaria is, it's so prevalent. And if we just help them with water and talk to them about these simple things, but they knew they couldn't just come in and tell them as these doctors and physicians that it would need to come from the elders. And so they started talking to the elders and educated the elders, and then it came from the elders. And it's been very successful in eliminating malaria and handing out mosquito nets has been more effective than um, Australians or Americans coming in and telling them how to do it. And so we, we wanna follow that model and be respectful. Dion's eloquent description of the Wahini Project as a way of being that emphasizes the quality of relationship and the dissolution of barriers went right to the core of what I've learned as a surfer and really hope to share in the larger Waves to Wisdom Project. The ocean offers us so much, life for starters, but in addition to the biological basics, the foundations of being on this planet, it can also point us in the direction of valuing adversity really enjoying the occasional pummeling. And it demands full sensory engagement, utter attention, as you begin to craft an understanding of how you in your body, just as you are in that moment, can most effectively and joyfully be in that dynamic medium. I asked Dion for her thoughts on that. I think what I'd like to say is the lessons learned that came into the creation of the Wahini Project is, you know, it, it happened when I was almost 40 years old. And what you don't realize in life is that everything that happens to you is going to be used. And that is from the death of my father to having a, a child when I was 20 years old, to being divorced, to being a teacher, what we perceive as trials and tribulations, but even great happiness, that it's all going to be used for something in a way that you have no idea and that you can trust everything that happens to you. 
And it hasn't been until the fruition of the Wahini project that it came into existence that I have learned that lesson. And creating a nonprofit is the hardest work I've done alongside raising children. And it's taken me through all those highs and lows. But what I've learned at this point is to trust everything because I'm so grateful for every experience I've ever had. Even in this communication I had with a mom today that we started off the week in a not an easy way, but I just kept going with it. I had to really talk to myself about it. Like, what is it in this relationship with this woman that I personally need to grow through and, and it be okay. And so by the end of the week, she's just been so open and, and wanting to grow in the difficultness that we had at the beginning of the week. And had I not trusted everything else in life, this, it was a really tough one with her. So it just helped me see it through to the end. Like, just let it keep rolling. It's not over. And that if we could learn those, you know, we're told this when we're young, but it's not until we're, we come to another age and wisdom and life experience that we see it happening and to have that patience and trust in life. And if we can somehow instill that in younger people and that I keep trusting that as, you know, cause it's still really half a life left, which is so awesome. And so the project for me is just teaching me about the beautiful ebb and flow of life and that there's just so much more to give and that so much happening right now that will lead to future giving. That's like, I can't, I'm so excited. Like what could it even be? And how many children do you have? I have four. Four. And I'm an only child. (laughs) (laughs) All boys? All boys. Four sons. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Excellent. And Mm -hmm. uh, do any of them surf? Two of them surf. They all learn to surf. One is over it. He's a land person. But the other two surf. One's a, well, he shortboards on longboards, but but the other one is a, a longboarder. And they are true watermen. I love to watch them in the ocean. I love to see them on surfboards where it's just, it's so fluid, their movement between the board and their body and how the ease at which they face waves and they face the challenge of the sea and their strength in the ocean. And I love to see them come home with their salty skin and sunburned faces and that we get to talk about waves. (laughs) It's oh, really wonderful. awesome. It's so inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, this is inspiring and yeah. informative. And thank you for asking great questions. Certainly, certainly. The Wahini Project and other efforts to get more children access to swimming skills are likely saving lives. CDC reports that drowning is the fifth leading cause of unintentional injury and death for people of all ages and the second leading cause for children ages 1 to 14. Racial disparities persist, and non-Hispanic whites are still significantly less likely to drown than Native Americans, Hispanics, or African Americans. Dion's desire to be able to protect her own children in the water, and the redefinition of her family culture from one of fear to one of feeling at home and finding strength, play, and even wisdom in the waves, has led her to offer the same potential to so many others. To learn more about Diani Barra, the Wahini Project, and find other interviews, 
visit wavestowisdom.com.